0: Even though uh, our kids and our family are moving out of the, the little, little child stage, um, one of the things I've, I've learned from parenting young kids is that a, a trip to go anywhere is no simple thing. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right, even just, hey, let's go get something from a fast food restaurant. I mean, that, that requires a bag or two with, you know, with diapers, clothes, equipment, toys, and and, and just anything else that, uh, that that might be needed for any type of possible emergency that might come up in that setting. Um, getting into and out of the car, of course, requires more than just doing my own seatbelt. There's at least one or two others to do. Um, even getting ready to walk out the door requires more than just making sure my own shoes are on, or I've got my own coat, or things like that. There's others to give attention to as well. Um, And, uh, you know, Megan and I got away for a few hours the other day, and uh, as I said, even though our kids are growing older now and we're kind of moving out of that stage a bit, uh, we we still commented on how much quicker it is to go places when it's just the two of us, right? Get in and out of the car, in and out of the the house, the store, whatever, quickly. Um, But none of that None of that even comes close to comparing with the work required to plan, coordinate, and execute a trip taken by the President of the United States. I was reading up on this a couple weeks ago. It is incredible. There is, there is an entire advanced, advanced preparation team whose sole job it is to take care of all of the incredible number of details that that surround a presidential visit. I mean, it, it is incredible. Everything from the timing of the schedule to the movement of the press pool, because it's not just the president, it's everybody that travels around with him as well, staff, press. Um, the setting up of lighting and seating for the for the speaking engagements or the events, the flying in of the presidential car, the beast, if you've ever seen that thing, I mean, that's got to be taken care of, Um, meals, security, surprise stops along the way, they still do those kinds of things, which is kind of interesting that they can keep that quiet. Um, uh, letting the president know where he's going and who he will be talking to, because a lot of times that's not set up by him. So, I mean, it it is incredible. If the president is going to go somewhere, there is so much preparation that has to take place in order for that to happen. This morning, we're going to take a look, if you will, at the the head of Jesus' advance preparation team. And team's kind of a loose term. It's just a one-man team. John the Baptist was was that guy. His role, as he openly told those who came to see him, his role was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That that, that was his job. And, And just like with, a, with uh, the preparation required for a visit from the president, there was preparation that needed to be done before the Lord would arrive as well. So what we're going to do is uh, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And we're going to read the first section here to, to get a sense of the setting surrounding the arrival of the Lord and the work being done by John to prepare for his arrival. So you can follow with me in uh, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trichonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his paths straight every valley shall be filled every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of god now now the first two verses there give us the names of seven different political, and religious rulers. And, and as we talked about some last week, the main takeaway from this list of names is to know that, that what Luke writes in the following 22 chapters are real events, and they are real events about a real person about a, that took place in a, at a real point in history. I mean, it can all be verified. In other words, a person can disagree with the interpretation of Jesus' words or the interpretation of Jesus' actions, but that doesn't change the fact that Luke, the historian, is communicating to us real events that took place. Jesus is just as real as any other historical figure. He lived, at, he lived during the time that uh, Luke writes for us in those verses So we get the the historical, the political setting, and then in addition to that, Luke gives us the religious setting in which the Lord would be coming. And Luke introduces John the Baptist in a way which would have directly linked John to the Old Testament prophets of the past. There's a a reason Luke writes it this way. So for example, uh, listen to The beginning of the book of Jeremiah, and see if we can't note some similarities with verses 1 and 2 here in in Luke chapter 3. So Jeremiah begins like this. It says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign that's how the book of Jeremiah starts. And if we compare that to Luke chapter 3 here, we have, again, a a political and a a historical setting. We have the name and the ancestry of the prophet given to us, and we have a clear statement that Jeremiah's message is from God. So just like we saw with Jeremiah, we see here with John the Baptist. And in other places too, Hosea chapter 1, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Uh, Micah chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I mean, Luke leaves no question that John the Baptist comes in this line of Old Testament prophets introduces him just like those Old Testament prophets were introduced. In many ways, what what is happening here in, in chapter 3 is that the Old Covenant is being closed by John in preparation for the New Covenant being opened by Jesus. There, there is a significant transition taking place in Luke 3, where John metaphorically hands the baton to Jesus. The old covenant is giving way to the new. Now, now one thing that we need to keep in mind in this, we especially need to keep this in mind as new covenant believers, we have to remember that John the Baptist is speaking to people who are still functioning according to the old covenant. They still have an old covenant Mindset. I I know we are in the New Testament gospel of Luke, but the ministry of Jesus hasn't happened yet, not as Luke is recording it for us. So the people are still thinking and they're still living according to the old sacrificial system put in place all the way back at Sinai 1,500 years prior. And they should be, because the old covenant between God and his people is still in effect at this point. The transitions happening but the Old Covenant is still in effect. So as we go through this passage this morning, we have to do our best to hear what John says from that context and that mindset. John is essentially an Old Testament prophet quoting from another Old Testament prophet in order to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. That is what's taking place in John chapter 3. And the prophet from whom he quotes is Isaiah. And the specific prophecy he quotes is a pretty famous one and a pretty significant one from the book of Isaiah chapter 40. So if you can remember uh, from our time going through Isaiah earlier this year, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah were written to God's people who were facing potential judgment from God. God was warning them. He was warning them to repent and, and, and return to him, and if not, then they were going to face judgment. They didn't, and so judgment came, and that judgment was in the form of being exiled to Babylon. So that's the first 39 chapters. Chapters 40 through the end were written to God's people who had undergone that judgment, and they were exiled at that point in Babylon. So the words from Isaiah that John quotes here, they opened that section of Isaiah, that section that was written to people who were discouraged and fearful regarding their future. They had been cast out from God's presence in the temple. They had been cast out from the city of Jerusalem. They perhaps wondered if they would ever return to the city, if they would ever return to the promised land, if the temple would ever be rebuilt again. And the message given to them in that section of Isaiah is that they would return, yes, but also that the Lord himself was on his way. So it wouldn't just be the people going back to the promised land, but that God would be with them there again as well. The way needed to be prepared because the Lord was coming. That's what Isaiah was proclaiming there. And what what an what an incredible message of hope and and comfort that that would have been to God's people in Babylon at that moment. And and Isaiah starts chapter 40 verse 1 and Isaiah starts with comfort comfort my people, says your God. So that message is intended to be one of comfort for God's people who have faced judgment and would be returning. So fast forward hundreds of years from the time of Isaiah, and we get to John the Baptist. Okay, God's people dwelled in the promised land. They were back. They were in the promised land. Uh, In fact, the the ministry of John took place in the Jordan River Valley just a day or so journey from Jerusalem. So they are in that vicinity. But although they were back in the land, and although the temple had been rebuilt, they were under the oppression of Rome at this point. And as far as the biblical record goes, there had been 400 years of silence in between the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. So the people must have been wondering again, uh, where's God? Yeah, we're back in the land. The temple's been rebuilt, but Rome is here. We're under oppression. Haven't heard from God in a while. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene and, like Isaiah, proclaims that the Lord is coming. How great must that have been, that the Lord is coming. There's been a lot of silence. There's oppression, but the Lord is coming. And so, again, the way needs to be prepared, because the Lord is coming. But this is where John's message takes a bit of a right turn when compared to Isaiah's. I mean, look at what John proclaims in verse 7. So he has just quoted Isaiah, and then in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, pretty strong, isn't it? (laughs) You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And that's a rhetorical question. Nobody had, but John was. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down, And thrown into the fire." I'm not exactly catching the comfort, comfort vibes that Isaiah had, right? (laughs) You brood of vipers. Man, I, I mean he warned them that the coming of the Lord meant the coming of judgment, meant the coming of wrath. I mean you can say a lot of things about John the Baptist. You can't say he pulled any punches. I mean, he, he, he let them know what was, take, what was going to take place. Now, now, the judgment of God upon the people is not a foregone conclusion at this point. I mean, far from it. That, that's why John is so boldly proclaiming his message, and he's calling people to repentance, because they don't have to face that judgment. There is hope for them. The Lord had not yet come, so the people still had that chance to prepare themselves for his arrival. And in case they're tempted to fall back upon their status as Jews, right, as God's people, John said, don't don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. It didn't matter that they were descendants of Abraham. That wasn't going to protect them from judgment. I mean, the only thing that would, according to John, was genuine repentance. Don't worry about your ancestry, that you're Jews, that you're Abraham's children. Repentance is what we need to focus on. And, And and this is this is where we really have to keep from reading our knowledge of the work of Jesus upon the cross into this story. Because that hasn't happened yet. Jesus that his ministry is still coming. No one in the crowd was anticipating that Jesus would die on the cross for their sins. I'm not even sure that John himself knew quite how the salvation of God would come about. But what John does know and what he does proclaim to the people is that they needed to repent of their sins before God. The, the, the preparation that needed to be done to prepare the way of the Lord was really a two-part process. They needed to recognize their sinfulness and then repent of their sinfulness. And so if they would come to that place in their lives, then they would be ready. The way of the Lord would be prepared if, if they would do that. And it seems that, seems that some were getting to that place. Uh, look at the response in verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Now again, it, it, it's, it's possible for us to read that passage and and become concerned that John is preaching some sort of works righteousness. You guys do this, you guys do that. It can sound like he's giving different groups of, of people various good deeds to accomplish in order to get right with God. Uh, but if we struggle with, with these words from John in that way, it's only because we already know the whole story, right? We, 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 we know that it's only by the grace of only by the grace of God that we are saved through our faith in the completed work of Jesus upon the cross. His resurrection back to life on the third day. We know all that, but we can't forget that hasn't happened yet. This, this crowd, these people here, they know nothing about that yet. What John is calling people to is not a works righteousness, but a genuine Repentance. I mean, look back at, uh, at verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So in other words, if the people truly do recognize their sin and truly are repentant of their sin, then there will be fruit of that in their life. It will show itself through those fruit. That they can't put their faith in Jesus just yet. But they can repent of their sins and show that it is a genuine repentance by how they live moving forward. And, and to do so, according to John, is to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. So to not come to a place of genuine repentance is to be in danger of the judgment of the Lord that he would bring. That judgment is referred to uh, what we're going to see three times in this passage as fire. Fire comes up three times. The first time in verse 9, John warns that those who don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that they will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Now, I think about that. I think about John delivering this message some ways it would have been much easier for John to simply preach a feel-good message about the coming of the Lord. Would have been easier to just pretend things were okay and that when the Lord comes it's, it's gonna be high fives and thumbs up and you know great everything's gonna be fine there's nothing we gotta worry about. But that would have been ignoring the difficult truth. Would have been ignoring that and, and, and just like the other Old Testament prophets John wasn't one to shy away from those difficult truths. Uh, The Lord was coming. Those who repented of sin would be ready for him. They would be ready for his coming. They would find salvation through him, but those who refused to repent weren't ready for his coming, and they would find judgment from that one who was to come. And, you know, I, I would say that even though it was a difficult message, I think, that John was giving, it It seems that it was being effective with those who were in the crowds because they, they begin to wonder, well, is, is John talking about himself? Is, is John kind of secretly sharing with us his own identity as this coming one? Maybe, maybe he's the one that the prophecy was speaking about. So look at what John says in verse 15. but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John's clear, I'm not that guy. John says, I, I'm not the Lord who's coming. I'm not the Messiah. And he's also clear that there was nothing magical about the baptisms that he was performing. So it's just baptism with water. What those baptisms did was highlight the repentance that took place in, in the person's life who was being baptized. And the same is true about baptisms today. Same thing is true. The act of being dunked under the water by a pastor does not save a person from their sins. Part of me wishes it would, because I would just go around dunking everybody. And, you know, I would. But, now that doesn't mean that baptism is insignificant. I mean, not at all, right? Just that it, it doesn't replace or it doesn't supplement the work of Jesus on the cross. Baptisms today highlight the work of Jesus in a person's life. You know, they've, they've died to their old sinful nature, and they've been resurrected to Jesus. Uh, they've been forgiven and cleansed of their sins. They've, they've participated in both the death and resurrection of Jesus. I, as the pastor, don't accomplish any of that in a person's life, as much as I might wish I could. I can't do any of that. It's all done by Jesus. So likewise, in in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist wasn't the one bringing about salvation through baptism. He wasn't even bringing about repentance through baptism. It was that people were repenting and then were being baptized as a sign of that. All the salvation that's going to come is going to be done through the Lord, who was soon to come. John's baptism was nothing but mere water— Jesus, the one who was coming, his baptism would be one of the Holy Spirit and fire. And so we get the second reference to fire in this passage. And, you know, some would say that uh, that John's description here, when he talks about baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire, uh, some would say that that's pointing ahead to Pentecost. Where, where the Holy Spirit was, uh, was poured out upon the followers of Jesus and that there were tongues of fire that, that fell on them as well. I, I, I would argue that's not what John means here because both other times that he's using fire in, in this passage, verse 9 and verse 17, which we'll get to real soon here, the fire is in reference to judgment. And and I think we are supposed to hear the same thing in verse 16, that the fire references judgment. So so Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and baptizing with fire alludes to the very thing that John the Baptist is proclaiming, that, that the way of the Lord needs to be prepared. Those who are prepared for that coming as evidenced by their genuine repentance, the the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. They would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. For those who were not prepared for the Lord, as evidenced by their lack of repentance, then their baptism would be with fire. The fiery judgment would be poured out upon them. And, And again, verse 16 matches then, I think, perfectly with verse 17, because all John does is he just switches analogies. He goes from talking about baptism in verse 16 to uh, harvesting grain in verse 17, which is great for us. I'm so glad we're reading this right now because harvest is taking place around us, isn't it? I mean everywhere we look, when the weather's good, we can see uh, we can see combines out in the fields doing their job. And and you know that piece of equipment called a combine is called that because it takes three different steps of the harvesting process and combines them into one machine. I was a lot older than I'd like to admit when I finally put the pieces together on that, but that's, that's what it does. So a combine reaps, and a combine threshes, and a combine winnows the grain, all, again, all within one machine. The reaping is the, the picking of the grain. The threshing is the removing of the grain from the stalk, And then the winnowing is the separating of the grain from the stalk and, and, and the chaff, the, all that that is unwanted. So, so in the analogy in verse 17, the grain has been reaped. Uh, it has been threshed on the threshing floor, and it's time to be winnowed. It's time to be separated from that unwanted chaff. So Jesus is pictured as the farmer who, who stands on the threshing floor ready to winnow the wheat from the chaff. And in, and in order to do that, right, when the wind was of a proper speed, the farmer would take the winnowing fork and he'd throw the mixture up into the air. And you've probably heard this before. The heavier grain would fall and the lighter chaff would, would blow away. And so if you do that enough times, then you're eventually left with the valuable grain. And again, John's message of repentance urges people to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Those who were ready are like the valuable grain, which after being winnowed is gathered into the barn. Those who are not ready are like the worthless chaff, which blows away, and, and in this analogy is burned in the fiery judgment. And Man, I would rather talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I would rather talk about gathering wheat into barns. I don't like to talk about baptism of of fire and the burning of chaff with fire. Those are difficult things to think about, to talk about. But again, to only give half of the message would be to be dishonest. Be dishonest with myself, be dishonest with all of us and anyone else. Um, and John didn't do that. John didn't do that with the crowds at the Jordan River. He was, he was honest with them. He, he let them know, hey, the Lord is coming. There's going to be salvation and judgment both. And I would say, you know, we shouldn't do that to anyone in our lives as well. We also should be honest. The Lord is coming, and we ought to prepare the way before he comes. I mean, He came for the first time immediately after John was speaking this. We'll get into this next week when Jesus shows up then, but he's also coming again. So we read these words now, and they are no less relevant today than they were when John proclaimed them some 2,000 years ago, that the Lord is coming, and we need to prepare the way for him. And when John first spoke the message, some heard. And some prepared themselves. They did. Others heard it and did not. And I think we get a picture of that uh, in verse 18. It says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now I read verse 18, and it's like, man, it seems odd when it says that John preached good news to the people. How can a message where John calls people a brood of vipers be good? How, how can how can a message where John warns them to flee from the coming wrath be good? How how can a message containing warnings of fiery judgment be good? Be a good message. I think it's a good message because of that last portion from that quotation from Isaiah. If you look back at verses four, five, and six, I mean, the the Lord was coming; the way he needed to be prepared. But then you see in verse six, "All flesh shall see the salvation of God." So yes, judgment was coming—judgment upon sin—but but salvation was coming as well. The Lord was bringing both with Him, and it was a good message because not only would sin be justly dealt with, but sinners were given the chance to find that salvation in God. The message is good because those who repent can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Those who repent can be found to be wheat that's going to be gathered into God's barn. So sin will be justly dealt with, but yet there's still hope. There's salvation available. And some prepared themselves. Some did, but then others, like Herod in this example, didn't. He refused to prepare himself. He, he, he was reproved by John the Baptist for marrying his sister-in-law, and instead of responding with repentance, he says, I'm going to throw John in prison. That's going to be my response. So some were prepared, some were not, as we see. So as we, as we consider the response of those in the time of John the Baptist, I think we also got to look now. We got to look at ourselves now. Consider our own response to John's message. In light of the, the declaration of the imminent arrival of Jesus, are you and I prepared? Are, are we prepared for his coming? Have we come to a place of repentance for sins and and sought salvation in Jesus? And that's, that's the question. John urged the crowds not to rely upon their identification as Jews, as children of Abraham. He said, don't fall back on that. That's, that's not going to help you. Um, You know, I would, uh, I would urge us not to rely on some of the things that we might be tempted to rely on being the children of uh, Christian parents, or being attendees of Eureka Bible Church, or of having a knowledge of Bible stories and, and other things in Scripture. Uh, those things aren't going to mean anything on the arrival of the Lord. They just won't. What does matter is faith in Jesus that's connected to repentance of sin, I mean that's, that's what we're called to. And so if you don't find yourself in that place of faith and repentance today, then I would encourage you, I would urge you to consider what that might look like in your life if you were. What might that look like? What, what, or what might be keeping me from, from being prepared for Jesus' arrival? A, a, a requirement for faith and repentance is not that one has everything all figured out, it's not. I mean, the crowds listening to John didn't have everything all figured out. Uh, they didn't even know who Jesus was. But they recognized their sin, and, and then some humbled themselves and repented before God. And so I, I would encourage you, if you feel like you're not prepared, at, at least start there, maybe. Think about repentance and what that might look like. And 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 maybe as we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke this account of Jesus, you might find yourself with a new and growing faith in Jesus. And, and for those of us who, who through faith in Jesus, have repented and, and are prepared for his return, let's consider our own role as John the Baptist in the world today, to take up his mantle and proclaim the truth for others, right? We, we, we probably don't have to look far in our lives to find someone who isn't prepared for the coming of the Lord. Let's, let's share the good news with them. I mean, that's what John did. He shared the good news, the good news that although judgment for sin is coming, there is salvation to be found in God. I mean, the people in John's day desperately needed to hear that message, and uh, people today, just like then, desperately need to hear that message. So I would challenge us, uh, I would challenge us to identify someone in our life who isn't yet ready for the coming of the Lord, who hasn't accepted the gospel message. And then the challenge, I would say a good challenge for this week specifically is is to pray for them each and every day this week. Just to say, I, I'm going to pray that, that God would work in their life, that he would do so in such a way that they would recognize their sin, that they would come to that place of repentance before God, that they would find faith in Jesus, be ready for his return. And and here's the caution, I guess. As we pray that way, we ought to be ready to be used by God. I mean, he may use us, he may not, but, but to not just pray that way, but to have eyes open, to have ears open, to what might be our role in this John type proclamation to proclaiming the gospel message. You know, we're gonna have, uh, uh, with next week, next Sunday being the the first Sunday of the month, we're gonna have our personal mission moment again like we do. And and I know that speaking in front of a crowd isn't everyone's cup of tea, um, and that's fine. But how great it would be to celebrate together God's work in us and through us. And Gordy's not going to be here to bail us out and share, so he's told us they're moving. <laughs> so we're gonna have to pick up the slack there. But uh, man, to pray that that, that message would, uh, would be proclaimed to those who need to hear it, and then to be ready for God to use us in causing that to happen. Jesus is coming, He's coming, and, and the, the way of the Lord needs to be prepared, and so we first look at ourselves, say, am I prepared for the coming, and then we proclaim that to others as well. Prepare the way for the Lord, we make his path straight, and then, man, the promise of verse six, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What a, what a wonderful message of hope, and comfort and encouragement that that is that there is salvation available through this lord who has come already we're in the new covenant but then is coming again would you stand with me let's let's give praise to god let's let's pray even now that he would be guiding us in this father we come before you and we thank you for people like John, who proclaimed this message, who prepared the way for you to come. And individually, we thank you for people in our lives who, who prepared the way, who helped prepare the way for us as individuals. If we have accepted you, somebody in our life shared the truth with us. And we give you praise for that. God, we thank you for those that have come before us who have taken this calling seriously to proclaim this message. We thank you how you have worked in our lives that we might be ready to receive that message. And God, even now, I do pray for those in our lives, those that you have placed in our lives who are not yet ready. We pray that you'd be working in their hearts, that you'd be revealing truth to them, that you'd be speaking to them. God, we pray that, that their hearts would be softened, that they would, would come to know you, that they would see the truth of the gospel and, and put their faith in that. And, and, and God, we do ask that if you, uh, if you desire to use us in that, to work through us, that, uh, that you would give us those eyes and ears to be ready. God it's such a it's such a privilege. It's a blessing to be able to to be able to participate in, in in something like that. God we thank you that that you are just when it comes to sin. And we also thank you that you show grace. We do know the end of the story. We do know that you gave of yourself on the cross. We know that that you defeated sin by rising from the dead. And we know that faith in you and in faith in that reality is what brings salvation into our lives. And so we give you praise. We thank you for that. We love you because of that. And we worship you because of that as well. God, we pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.